Uh, sometimes in order to do well, you need to be taught well. Good teaching hopefully lives to good living. When we were, uh, in fact, Hannah Grace and I went home this uh, last week or the week before and visited with my sister and, and uh, family a little bit. And um, they were telling me uh, my great niece, Cadence, is about four, 14 years old. And her mama told her to fold the clo- get the clothes out of the dryer and fold them and put them up, uh, which she did. Um, her dad took a shower, I think it was the next day, and he came out and said, why are there wet towels in the closet? <laughs> so they came up and they said, Cadence, why are there wet towels in the closet? She said, because they were wet when I took them out of the dryer and folded them and put them up. <laughs> she said, y'all didn't tell me to turn the dryer on. Y'all said fold the clothes out of the dryer. Y'all, you would th- at 14, you wouldn't think you would have to say they need to actually have been dried before you fold. She folded wet towels up and put them up, and uh, so they had a good. They did not teach well. Uh, interestingly enough, her mom, when her mom was around that age, um, she wanted to write uh, Mike a note for his daughter. Always wrote Mike a note for lunch. You know, love you, have a great day, and it was kind of a thing. He got his, his partners got to where they wanted to, so he had to read the note from from his wife to the whole crowd. You know, the whole work crew there to the plant, and so they got forward looking to it one day. One day he didn't have a note, and so he came home, and and um, Nicole said. Um, that's her, her stepdad. She calls him Mr. Mike. He said, Mr. Mike, did you enjoy the note I wrote? She said, well, sweetheart, I, I didn't have a note. She said, yeah, I'll put a note in your lunch. He said, um, I didn't see a note. And so she asked Darla about it. And she said, she said she wanted to do it by herself, so I let her do it by herself. And so he said, well, sweetheart, where was it at? He said, she said, it was between the mayonnaise and the ham. <laughs> <laughs> He ate the note. <laughs> it deteriorated. You would think you wouldn't have to tell somebody that. You would think they would know the note goes outside the sandwich. That's the way they can get the note. So anyway, uh, not very good teaching. Didn't think you'd have to say that. And some things in the Christian life you don't know that you have to say to get right living. But in our day and time and in Jude's day and time, we need to make sure we're doing good teaching because if you don't do good teaching, it doesn't result in good living. And the goal of teaching is not simply learning. The goal of teaching is a life lived for Jesus. The goal of teaching is never head knowledge. You and I know that. That's one reason why I pray a lot. I hardly ever pray that we would simply learn something new. I pray that we would experience God, that God would use his truth to change our lives. So the book of Jude is written by one of Jesus' brothers or half-brothers. Another one was James. Remember, James wrote the book of James. We talked about him. And, um, And this is Jude. Now, Jude is trying to help a church to live with and for Jesus in the best possible way. And yet, because of bad teaching, there are a lot of people living poorly for Jesus, living in a really bad relationship with Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus' brothers uh, and probably his sisters as well did not believe in him while he was alive on the earth before the crucifixion. In uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we find out that he had brothers and sisters. That when the people said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Judas is our God, Jude. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, the New International Version, tells us that we didn't believe in it. When his family heard about this, 
They went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, you can probably think about, if you think about the New Testament as a whole, and you see his name was Judas, he's, he's kind of going by Jude now, probably because of Judas Iscariot, right? We don't want to be that guy. Don't want to be referred to as that guy. Plus, and he loved the way Hey Jude sounded, thought it might become a song one day, so he went with Jude. So anyway, uh, doesn't want to be Judas Iscariot, hardly anybody's named Judas anymore. Uh, we go with Jude more, more so. And it's a good reason to believe in Jesus. There are reasons. You can't prove things from the Old Testament or the New Testament. You can't prove things from back then. But there are good reasons. One is that his brother wrote, I am a slave of my brother. Now, how many of you be willing to write that? <laughs> I'm a slave. He said, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And by the way, another good reason to believe in Jesus is because um, uh, uh, who... Let me say, ask this way. What was Jesus' mother's name? Uh, right, that's not a hard question. Okay, let's try it one more time. What, because it, my, my point really loses, it's not a trick question. My point really loses a little punch here if you don't know it, all right? So what was Jesus' mother's name? Mary. Yeah, it was Mary. Okay, perfectly. Okay, so here's the thing. What other ancient person from, what other ancient, person from ancient history do you know their mom's name? especially somebody from a lower socioeconomic background, which Mary and Joseph were from. You probably don't know Herod the Great's mama's name. You probably don't know Caesar Augustus's mama's name. You probably don't know Cleopatra or Mark Anthony. You might know some of you history buffs might know a couple of those. But listen to what Mary, the mother of Jesus, said in Luke chapter 1. For he has been mindful of the humble servant of his, for the humble state of his servant. For now on all generations will call me blessed. Who would have ever thunk it? In that day, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, probably a, a, a little community of about 300 people. When it says there was no room for them in the inn, Bethlehem was so small there probably weren't real inns. It's probably guest rooms in people's homes. It's a very small community, very small place. Who? In the, I mean, if Mary were to say here today, and you were to say, "I have doubts about believing in Jesus," you might would say, "Well, you know, everybody has those doubts." But the fact that you know my name pretty strong evidence that my son was who he said he was. I even prophesied that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So back to Jude. We know that Jude became a leader in the early church. Uh, he was a, probably a traveling teacher. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.5, 1 Corinthians 9.5, where Paul writes, do we not have a right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles? Now watch this, and the Lord's brothers, probably talking about James and Jude, perhaps Simon and Joseph as well. We don't know much about them. But Jude's writing to, to refute these corrupt teachers, to help these guys to live a godly way, reminding Jesus' followers that their lives indicate what they truly believe. I can say what I believe, but the way I live shows you what I truly believe. And, and I don't mean that in a way of saying, you know, we need to try to convince each other. We need to look at ourselves and look at our lives, look at how we talk and how we treat people and ask ourselves, what do I truly believe about God and about Jesus? So the word here, and look at verse 3 again, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly Contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Uh, the words there uh, where it says earnestly contend, the word earnestly is where we get our word 
agonize from. It's a word that comes from the Grecian games. It would be our, our modern-day equivalent of the Olympics. Think about a person in the Olympics. They train all the time. They train earnestly, vigorously to agony, to, to the absolute point of muscle failure. Why? To win the prize. And he's saying, man, this is really Really important. This is more important than any Olympic gold medal, the faith that we have in Christ. John Wesley wrote it this way. It was needful to exhort you to contend earnestly, yet humbly, meekly, and lovingly. Otherwise, your contention would only hurt your cause, if not destroy your soul. And so this is huge because the gospel that we have revealed in the New Testament is the only gospel by which men and women can be saved. It's the only way of salvation. And in Jude's day, as in our day, there's always been attacks against the gospel. People who try to dilute the gospel, water down the gospel, change the gospel, modify the gospel. It's always going to be that way. But we have the most precious message that could ever be heard. There can be nothing compares to what we have. And so we have to contend what? That we keep it pure, that we keep it true, that we keep it right. Why? It's the only gospel. When I went to my first church, there was a family there that had a unique expression. Um, I didn't really like it then. Uh, don't really like it now. <laughs> but, the, but the way they, would, they were complimenting me, but they would say, we like the gospel you preach. And the reason why I'm not crazy about that, and I know what they were saying is, we agree with how you preach the gospel. But I, don't like the, I didn't like the saying because it's not my gospel, right? It's not your gospel. I, I don't, there's not 17 different gospels that people are preaching out there. There's one gospel, and it's the only way people can be saved. If there was another way, don't you think God would have done something beside kill his own son? So let's talk about three things. First of all, let's look at the attacks. As we contend for the faith, we need to recognize the attacks that come against the faith. We have to become, uh, to contend earnestly because they are attacks against it. Listen to Jude 1, 3 in the Phillips paraphrase. I feel compelled to make my letter to you an earnest appeal, watch this, to put up a real fight for the faith. Now, you're not talking about fist fight. You understand that. He's talking about words, talking about arguments, talking about lifestyle, which has been once for all committed to those who belong to Jesus Christ. And so the, the faith, when he, when he speaks of faith, when he speaks of faith, he's talking about two main things, two ways the word faith is used. One is the doctrine that we believe. And when he says the faith that has been committed to the saints, that's what he's talking about, the doctrine we believe. And the reason this is important is not so you'll believe what Baptists believe. The reason this is important is not that you get the answers right. It's not so that you can pass a quiz. You know, there's all these jokes about, you know, you get to heaven and St. Peter's going to be there at the gate and he's going to ask you these questions. Um, Those are jokes. Those aren't truths. Now, St. Peter's not going to be there. You're not going to have a quiz, you know. Uh, we think about school a lot, quizzes and things like that. There's no quiz to get into heaven. It's not about head knowledge. You get there because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying here. The faith is the doctrine that we believe. And so we believe something, what, about God. What God is like, how God acts, how we can be rightly related to God, how we can be saved, how we please God, how we treat other people, how we to pray, how do you prepare for eternity, how do we get power to live this life that God's called us to live. All of these things are, are things that our faith 
tells us how to do. So it's not about answers. It's not about being right, somebody else being wrong. It's about how do we rightly relate to God, which is the second point. First of all, is it's the, the faith means the doctrine we believe. Secondly, it's how we relate to God uh, properly. How we relate to God properly. You see, uh, it's not that you get to the pearly gates and they try to decide if they let you in or not. You die, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, I believe when, we, when a person closes their eyes in death, they wake up in heaven. The best, the closest thing we have is in Luke 6, about you know, how that transition takes place. Luke 16 talks about uh, the angels carried uh, Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. So maybe, maybe we'll get an angel ride. I'm not sure. But somehow, someway, we get transported into the very presence of God. There aren't lines at the pearly gate, okay? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name we cast out devils. In your name we done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. It's not they didn't have the right answers. They did not know Jesus correctly. They did not have a right relationship with Christ. Now, you need to know some things. You need to know that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that Christ died in your place, rose from the dead, and that by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, committing our life to Christ, He saves us. We come in a real relationship with Him. You have to know that, and then you can act on it. Then you can go to Jesus. And you see, what's happening here at Jude is they are using God's grace as a license to live an immoral life. Well, God's going to forgive me anyway, live any way I want to. If God's grace covers all of my sin, what does it matter how I live? And here's the thing. If you teach the gospel right, this will typically come up. It came up with Paul. When Paul was writing the book of Romans, he brings out the case for grace, which is, which is what we believe. And then he says, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. It's going to be a question. What if we can't do anything to save ourselves and just live any way you want to live? That's, that, you kind of know you're preaching it right if somebody thinks that. But here's the thing. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. When you're saved, God changes your heart and you start wanting to please God and wanting to love Jesus and your, your life goes a different way. And so grace is seen as what? Something to be grateful for. And grace is not a commodity, it's who God is. You're so grateful that God treats you that way that your heart is changed toward Him. Now guys, there is always going to be an attempt to dilute the gospel. It's always going to be an attempt and an attack to change it. And it's happening all the time. And some of it just gets ridiculous. What people say, the Bible teaches, and then you actually look at it and say, how did you get that? And then you see some of the emphasis in some of the churches, and it's all about us, what we want. And how we can be happier. And how we can have more stuff. And one of the more ridiculous things I've seen lately is one of the uh, wealth and prosperity, uh, health and wealth teachers uh, recently. 
uh, this is, saw the video. I'm not making this up. Saw the video on this. He had people in the congregation. I wrote it down because I watched the video. I wrote it down. So he had, the, had people in his church to put their hands, especially if you were bald, put your hands on your head and pray to God, bald spots, I call you gone. Hair, grow. And the whole congregation's hollering. Hair, Grow. Trying to get you some business, Rhonda. <laughs> and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, what in this world does this have to do with following Jesus? And the whole church is hollering. They're all shouting, hair grow, hair grow. Second thing I want you to see is our adversary. And it's really, we say it's an attack on the gospel. It's really an attack on Jesus, you got, this guy's got thousands of people sitting out there, and that's what he wants to talk about instead of how to live a godly life. Second thing I want you to see is an adversary. There is an adversary who wants to water it down, and his name is Satan, right? Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're to love people. We're to try to lead people to Christ. But there are some things that cannot be allowed to be taught in a Jesus-loving, Bible-centered church. And that's what Jude is saying. He's not saying you should hate people. What he's saying, you got guys in there teaching things and living in ways that are absolutely contrary. We're not talking about small things. How about huge things, big things, absolutely contrary to the gospel. And, yo, you cannot allow that to continue to happen. You've got to have some kind of standard for your teaching. Look at Jude chapter 1, verse 8, the New Living Translation. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams, notice that, from their dreams, have a vision, seen a dream, not from Scripture, but from their dreams. He said what? I claim authority from their dreams. And what happens? They live immoral lives. They defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings. I heard a preacher say recently that somebody once in a while will tell him, you know, I saw an angel. I saw an angel. And he said, well, did you fall on your face in terror? And typically they say no. And he said, well, you didn't see an angel then. <laughs> because everybody, unless you're much more godly or holy than people in Scripture, because the people in Scripture that saw angels fell on their face in terror. And we got kind of how Angel shows up. I read where one guy said he, would, he, showed, he was shaving one morning, and Angel kind of vis, vis, visibly appeared beside him, put his arm around him. It's like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> that. That sounds like a dream. Of, that's not based in Scripture. One angel takes out 185,000 members of the Assyrian army, okay? That's a terrifying being, okay? Now, he gives several examples. Let me just mention a couple. I won't have time to do all of it, but here's where it typically goes, and here's where it goes for these guys. Money and sex. Money and sex. Pleasure and power is another way of saying that. He talks about the rebellious angels, Jude does. He gives several examples. I just mentioned a couple. He talks about the rebellious angels. Look in Jude chapter 1, verse 7, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. What are these? These are those who followed Satan. 
These are those who were not willing to submit to God. They weren't willing to, to subjugate their desires to God's desires. And this is where God is living. This is where pleasing Jesus really hits the road. Am I willing to say, not my will, but thy will be done? Am I willing to be uncomfortable and inconvenienced for the cause of Christ? Our leader, the Lord Jesus, was crucified, right? That's uncomfortable, that's inconvenience, that's going through pain. Why? To serve somebody else, and that's what we're called to do, to be willing to be inconvenienced, to, be in, uh, to, to go through difficulties, to go through hard times, to what? To serve each other, to serve the world so they can see the magnitude and the glory of God's love. If all I do is live for myself, how's the world going to see God's love in that? That's what he's talking about here. Um, Jude 1.9, New International Version says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The idea here is submission. Now, just as a side note, there's a group of books called the Apocrypha. Uh, the Apocrypha are some Jewish writings that, that as Protestants we don't count as Scripture. Um, and around 390 or so A.D., there was a church council that decided to include them in the, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, and Catholics still have the Catholics, maybe some of the Episcopalians. Some churches still include those books as part of the Bible. Here's the thing to remember. Um, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, do not have those books. Okay, this is something that they put in other than. So we believe that they were Jewish writings of things that people study, but they are not on the par with Scripture. And so when Jude puts these things in, it, it's a little weird, and you wonder what does this verse really mean, and I, I wonder that as well. <laughs> it's a really hard verse to read commentaries, and it's just very, very difficult to know. The idea here is this, what? We need to know that God is all-powerful. Angels are more powerful than we are. We are to be submissive to God. We don't worship angels. We don't, you know, that's not who we kind of confer with. We sent our relationship on submitting to Jesus. Second thing, though, here, so this is about rebellion, not submitting ourselves. Second thing is Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 7 of Jude 1. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire. Now, as I said before, it's not small stuff. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't because, you know, they, they didn't go to church on Wednesday night. <laughs> they, the, they had angels, male angels come to town, and the response of the town was to sexually assault them. It's bad stuff, perverted stuff, and that's what Jude is saying. These guys are living immoral lives. And, y'all, it's one of the things that, that's really difficult today. It's really uh, kind of in our face is just the homosexual agenda. And one of the most more recent studies or more, more recent books, spate of books that came out in the last three or four years says, and what they say is that in Leviticus, whenever, and if you have read anything about the homosexual movement trying to gain credibility in the Christian world, you may have heard this. What they say is that in Leviticus, when it says a man shall not lay with a man, that they use two different words for men. And so what they're talking about is a man shouldn't lay with a boy. It's pedophilia. 
And that's what he's talking about. Now, they're right in one, one respect. They're right, and there are two different words for male there. One means man. One means male. Neither one has any reference to age. Now, this is how sloppy some people's Bible study are. Let me read you the verse, one of the verses that, 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 that's, talk, that that's talking about. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man, one particular Hebrew word, has sexual relationships with a man, different word, as one does with a woman, y'all know what that means, both, that's the key word of the verse as far as they're concerned, both of them have done what is detestable. They both are to be put to death and their blood will be on their own heads. That's not pedophilia. They're not both guilty. They don't, they're not both put to death. That's pedophilia. It's, it's such a ridiculous reading of those passages of Scripture. And the other thing is you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you go to Romans chapter 1, and you get the same thing. And so you have this, 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 this idea of trying to push that homosexuality, God made us this way, and, this, and, that's, okay, and that's the way we live, and so we just have to accept that. Listen, there are lots of urges that all of us have that aren't good. <laughs> You know, that just because you have a desire for something doesn't mean it's good. All of us are affected by the fall. All of us are affected by Adam's sin. And there are a lot of things, there are a lot of desires that you and I have that are just wrong. And we have to subjugate ourselves to the Scripture. The other one, that's one of the bigger, biggest ones. One of the other big ones to me that's really uh, threatening our, uh, the gospel today is universalism. Where people say, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Long as you try your best. Long, and in fact, a lot of the New Age thinkers, the positive psychology thinkers, one of the things they typically say a lot is, everybody's doing their best. And I say, you, you, who are you trying to kid? <laughs> I'm not doing my best, <laughs> okay? Not every day, not every time, not in every circumstance. Not Everybody's not doing their best, okay? And here's the thing. If everybody goes to heaven, and they'll say, you know, Jesus taught that it's all about love. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about, you know, it's all about everybody's accepted. And, they, you know, Jesus said, you know, neither do I condemn thee. It's like, would you read the next sentence? Go and sin no more. You know, you just kind of read the Scripture. So the, the, the interpretation of Scripture on so many of these things is so sloppy. It's so sloppy that you, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out it's not what Jesus taught think look at what he says why did they stone him why did they or or try to stone him why did they crucify him was it because he's just this really really nice guy okay it's because he claimed to be God he claimed to be the only way to God he claimed to be able to forgive sins he claimed equality with God and he said he would prove it by rising from the dead now that's either true or it's not And the guys that say, well, all religions are basically saying the same thing. No, they're not. Nobody else says our leader rose from the dead and he's the only way to go to heaven. It's through him. So they're not all the same. And so these are the kinds of things we have to contend for. These are the kinds of things that help us to live a godly life. The false teachers were not only spreading lies, not only spreading false doctrine, but they were living Wrong. He calls them waterless clouds. You ever sit there in the, and you really, really need a rain and you look in the summertime and the big cloud comes up and the wind starts to blow and the thunder, you hear the thunder and you think, man, we're finally going to get a rain. 
and then it just passes over and nothing. Isn't that disappointing? That disappointing. I do wonder if those bald men go back to church next Sunday that put their hands on their head. Now I'm serious. <laughs> it's funny, but I'm serious. And they're still bald, because you know they are. Right? They're still bald. They still don't have any, any, any hair. And I wonder if any of them have the courage to write their pastor and say, how come I'm still bald? <laughs> you commanded, he said, I command hair grow. You commanded it. Why? And the guys that teach, anybody that's sick, that has enough faith, God will make you well, they've got the same rate of sickness in their church as we do. I, I, I understand the guys who go around in crusades and tents and go one city to another city. I understand that a little bit. I don't understand how people can teach and preach that in the same place for 15 or 20 years. If you just command it, just say it, just believe it, you're going to be wealthy. I know some of those guys, I know some of them aren't wealthy, and they get sick as often or more than I do. And I just wonder, how do you keep this waterless clouds? How do you keep preaching that? What we do preach is, if you trust in Christ, uh, he will forgive you of your sins and you will start a process of becoming more like Jesus that will culminate when you see Christ and in your sickness and in your baldness, <laughs> that's part of it. You know, it was really funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's really interesting to see the ladies with plenty of hair hollering, hair grows. Like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> Got plenty of hair. <laughs> you, know, it, it, you know, to see people truly growing in love, loving people they used to not love, boldness and sharing their faith, that kind of thing. That's what true Christian doctrine leads to. And last of all, there's advancement. One of the best ways to contend for the faith is to grow yourself, for you to grow in the faith. And he gives, look if you will, in Jude chapter 1, verse 20, he gives us a couple of ways to do this. I'll give you these real quick. We'll be done. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. This is New International Version. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Let me just give you a couple of things. Number one, pray in the Spirit. If you want to contend for the faith, pray in the Spirit. That's not rope praying. That's not just saying your prayers at night. That is praying energized by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, submissive to the Holy Spirit, praying what is best you understand what the Holy Spirit wants you praying for, for yourself, your family, your church, and praying in a way saying, Lord, whatever you show me, I'll be obedient to it. It's praying in the Holy Spirit. Some people take this as praying in tongues. Uh, it doesn't say anything about tongues here. It says pray in the Spirit, in the power and the direction under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Second thing he says is stay in God's love. So how do you do that? Well, good enough, Jesus answered that for us. Look at John 15, 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. This is the opposite of what Jude is saying. Jude's contending against people who are living immoral lives. Jesus said, if you obey me, you will stay in my love. So how do you contend for the faith? You obey what Jesus taught you to be. You don't freak out. You don't get violent. You don't get mad at everybody else. You continue to walk as close as you can with Christ. And the third one is you share the message of Jesus. It's an interesting, it's a 
vivid description Jude gives. Snatching them from the fire. Isn't that a vivid description of what evangelism is? That people, according to John 3, that aren't saved are living under the condemnation of God. The same scripture that says John 3, 16, okay? Under the condemnation of God. In other words, uh, they are headed for the fire. And by sharing Christ, we're not just trying to get them to come to church. We're not just trying to get them to be nicer people. We're not just trying to get them to, to be moral. We're trying to snatch them from the fire. We're trying to help them to come to Christ and make the very best decision they will ever make for the rest of their lives. I was reading this week, a guy said it's C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Some of y'all watched the movies, read some of those books, written other books. C.S. Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain, Mere Christianity, just one of the most revered Christian authors of the 20th century. His secretary, a guy named Hooper, um, the guy's name Walter Hooper, uh, he described uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis in these words. He said, he was the most thoroughly converted man I ever met the most thoroughly converted man I ever met. I, what a wonderful thing to say. Here's a man, heart, soul, mind, and strength that had become thoroughly inhabited by Jesus Christ. I've heard people say the same thing about Dallas Willard, who's another, author, another Christian author. They say they, they just love being in his presence because there was such a sense of the presence of God there. So how about this? Could we pray and could we seek to say, Lord, I want to be the most thoroughly converted person I could possibly be. And that's how you contend with faith. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed? Heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around this evening. <clears throat> it's easy to get discouraged. All the false doctrine, all the bad teaching, all the hoopla goes around Christianity. But the message of Jesus is going to live on. <laughs> This church is built on the rock. God's church is built on the rock. And uh, it will not fail. There may be a particular churches that fail, but Jesus' church won't. And so we're standing on the right side of things. Even if it seems like uh, more and more people are abandoning the true faith, we're, we're, you're standing on the right side of things because you're standing with Christ. You're standing with the one who rose from the dead. And so we contend for the faith by sharing the truth and living godly lives, understanding, trying to pass along in the church, outside of church, the truth, the main truth. We'll disagree about some things, but the main truth of what the Old New Testament teach. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for those who um, shared the message of Christ with us that we could be snatched from the fire. We thank you, Father, we can pray in the Holy Spirit, keep ourselves in your love. Thank you, the Lord, Lord, when we contend for the faith. We're on the winning side and the winning team because you are the winner. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around is leaving.